3 and 4. It's probably the favorite line in a sermon. Not 2, 3, and 4, but the following words in a sermon. In conclusion, finally in summary, and let me close by. You see that I take off my watch when, each Sunday. You know what that means? Absolutely nothing. Um, when I was a little boy and I heard those words, in conclusion, or finally in summary, or let me close by, I thought, oh good, he's finally done. And so as I got a little bit older, I would be a little bit more subtle. I would try to be like a detective and uh, slowly just kind of reach up and look at my watch and wonder how much more time is the preacher going to preach. It's not so subtle, by the way, when you look at the clock. I see you. So here's the reason why I'm talking about that. This is the conclusion of a series on prayer that we have had for the last 10 weeks. Our series has been called, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. And today, we're going to tweak that a little bit, and we're going to call it, Lord, Help Us to Pray. We've looked at this model over here, and just like any model, we've looked at this model over here, and just like any model that you make, maybe a car model or a plane model, it's just, a, these are some boards to help us understand what each of the different petitions are all about. Uh, Jesus invites us to pray, not just a rote prayer, but just to kind of stop at each one of the petitions they're called, each one of these different boards, and go, if this is true, how does that look like played out in my own life? Uh, this morning, now we pause and we come to the part of the series that we say, okay, now what? And now how does this play out in our culture of narratives and news and opinions and declaration? Can anything unify us? Well, Jesus thought so. In fact, he said so, and I'm going to share that with you in this message in just a bit. First, I want to share with you a, a map. Oh, I told someone today, what does prayer look like? I mean, no surprise. I'm going to show you a visual, and the reason why we do that is most people are visual learners. Now, secondly, I want to give to you a simple key, a privilege, if you will, about prayer that I think changes literally everything about prayer. And then thirdly, I want to give you maybe a surprise and realize that the King of Kings, the King of all kings, has prayed for us. So I want to encourage you to uh, find a bulletin and uh, follow along with me. And the first thing that we're going to take a look at is this, that we're going to look at what prayer is and what prayer does. What do we mean by that? What prayer is and what prayer does? This is a, a map, and I want to encourage you to, if you have a bulletin, to turn it over on the back side. And what you have is a copy from this book called Visual Theology. It's from a reformed Canadian pastor and author by the name of Tim Chalice. And uh, several years ago, I was introduced to this idea that he does some mapping or some graphing of key scriptural terms. And if you, that's too small for you, that we have some nice uh, colored copies that are at the, at the uh, Welcome Center. And I want to encourage you to uh, take that in. So let me explain what this map is. And if you're watching online, uh, you might just want to pause this 
or get your smartphone and just take a picture. And I just want to walk you through what prayer is and what prayer does. And you'll notice that on the back side of your bulletin, what prayer is are, are the white blocks that are there. Do you see them? Assertive supplication, peaceful adoration, response, delight, and duty. That's what prayer is. Some. It's not obviously exhaustive. And the reason why we're doing this is because in just a minute, I'm going to ask you, which one strikes you? I'll share what strikes me. And I'm going to have you just say that in a whisper. And then why? And then what does prayer, what prayer does? What does prayer do? And, and those blocks, as he's kind of mapped it out, are prayer builds relationships. Prayer brings results. Prayer changes you. And prayer prepares you. So obviously, I've, I've thought quite a bit about this this week and getting ready for this. So as you're looking at those, I'm going to ask you, what are yours in just a sec? But here's mine. Here's prayer, prayer is. This is what really struck me. What struck me about this map is that prayer is peaceful adoration and prayer is delight. Peaceful adoration, knowing that God's name is holy and that his kingdom is coming and that his will will be done. Prayer is not emptying your mind, but filling your mind with God's word and enjoying communion with him. Remember, the first time you meet Jesus, what will that be like? Seeing him face to face. C.S. Lewis says that the first time when we step into heaven, our first couple words might be this, of course. But I'm looking forward to meeting Jesus face to face. Prayer gives us that opportunity. That's what prayer is. It also delights you, let me just ask you this question. You can just whisper this if you want to. Who's someone that you absolutely delight being with? Is it a good friend? One of my good friends, his name is Brad. I just delight being in his presence. I delight being in his presence. He knows me. I'm safe with him. We laugh. We tease each other. Of course I love you is someone who you delight with. You hug them. Prayer is the opportunity to to enjoy the delight of God. That's what, now what, what do we do? Now, what does prayer do? Well, it's many things. Again, it's, this is not exhaustive. It just kind of gives you a grid, something to think about and ponder. It builds relationships and it prepares you. Prayer prepares you to be close to my Father and to know what mourns him and what brings him joy. It prepares your heart to not respond with anger when difficulties and trials come, when you're in situations that you need the wisdom of God and you say, how can I act in a graceful way when trials and hardships come? Let me encourage you. Let me invite you to spend more time on kneel time than screen time. Did you hear that? More time on kneel time than screen time. So, which one struck you? Of the prayer is and the prayer does. Just whisper. Which one strikes you? Delight? Brings results? Why? I hope this encourages you. I hope it bolsters your relationship with the King of Kings, and I hope it reminds you. There's a Lutheran devotional writer that I've recommended. His name is O. Halsby. 
he uh, wrote a book called Prayer. It's a great Christmas gift. If you want to continue in prayer and learn more about prayer, I invite you to do that. You can buy it on Amazon. He said this, helplessness is your best prayer. It calls from your heart to the heart of God with greater effect than all your uttered pleas. Helplessness. If you learn nothing more about prayer, write these three words down. Just jot these down. Jesus, have mercy. Jesus, have mercy. As we think about, Lord, help us to pray, we also see that prayer is a privilege for a follower of Christ. Prayer is a privilege. It's a key. It unlocks a reality as a follower of Jesus. I wrestled with this word. Is it right? Is it, is it okay to say that we have the right as a follower of Jesus to pray? Well, yes, but with this qualifier. This is very important. It is a privilege and a right in the sense of a gift. In other words, did you earn your salvation? Pfft, no. Did I earn my righteousness? No. Is the truth of being forgiven something I did? No. Is the peace between you and God something you did? No. Emphatically, no. In fact, Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace you have been saved by faith. It's not of yourself. It is a gift of God. So, we can't boast. The Living Translation says, you can't take credit for it. It's a gift of God. It's a spontaneous gift that he gave through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the privilege. This comes from the Amplified Translation. I think they did a great job. Therefore, let us with privilege approach the throne of grace. That is the throne of God's gracious favor with confidence. Different translations use this word boldness or brave. And my favorite is when we approach the throne of grace with the freedom that he lets us have. With freedom. Wow. The verse goes on to say, and without fear so that we might receive mercy for our failures and find his amazing grace to help in time of need an appropriate blessing coming just at the right moment. Isn't that good? Wow. Let that wash over your soul. Let that strengthen your heart. You can come to him and come to him with your need. Maybe the best way to uh, see this played out is in a parent-child relationship, but in no ordinary parent-child relationship. This mother, all we have to do is say two words about her name, and you immediately know who she is. And the son, well, he's like nobody who's ever lived before. And the mother is the Virgin Mary. And the son, well, he's the son of God and the son of man. And you see this interaction between the two of them in John chapter 2 this right and this privilege that she has. John chapter 2 is Jesus' famous first miracle at the wedding of Cana where he turned water into wine. And they ran out in this huge Jewish celebration. And Mary's comment that she asks Jesus is, they've run out of wine. They've run out of wine. And Jesus' response is, dear one, 
what is that to me? My hour has not come. Now, for, ye <laughs> for years and years, I, I thought the point of that was, well, Mary got what she wanted, right? So just go to Mary, talk to Mary, because she's, she's, the, she's the mom of Jesus, and boom, 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 boom. That's how it works, right? But if you press in and ponder that a little bit, Mary had never seen Jesus do a water-wine miracle. Now, she knew all about miracles, didn't she? I mean, she had never been with a child, had never been with a man, yet she was going to have a baby. She knew all about miracles in the heart change that happened with her betrothed husband, Joseph, who was going to divorce her quietly, but the angel showed up. She knew all about miracles when the shepherds came and told them that they had seen a choir of angels to tell about who was laying in the manger. She knew all about miracles when she pondered these things in her heart when magi came from the east and gave them gifts. She knew all about miracles when she uh, remembered what happened in a dream where they were going to slaughter all the little baby boys, but not hers. She knew all about miracles when they lost Jesus at age 12, and he's in the temple about his father's business and absolutely stumping those who are trained in the Torah. She knew all about miracles, but she'd never seen this before. And so she simply left the need at Jesus' feet, and now it was his issue. Now it was his problem. He stepped into happiness, and soon there would be joy. Here's the takeaway. Your privilege as a follower of a child of God is to lay your requests at the feet of Jesus and let him take care of the problem. Devotional writer Oswald Chamber, in his utmost for his highest, says this, if God sees that my spiritual life will be furthered by giving me the things which I ask, then he will give them. But that is not the end of prayer. The end of prayer is that I come to know God himself. I gave him my need. He will bring about the result for his glory. Think about this. Often behind the scenes, things you will pray for, you may never see the results of. There may be answers to prayer that you are praying for someone that you might not see the results in your lifetime. When there's a revival that happens, everybody knows the evangelist. But what about the people who are on their knees for decades praying and interceding? Praying and interceding. New York pastor and author Tim Keller writes this, Lord, prayerlessness is a sin against you. It comes from self-sufficiency that is wrong and that dishonors you. Prayerlessness is also a sin against those around me. I should, engaging, I should be engaging my heart in your power and their needs. Lord, I pray with all my heart that you would give me a heart for prayer. So in conclusion, aren't those good words? You've been prayed for by Jesus. Did you know that? In John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23, Jesus prays for his followers. And he says this, my prayer is not for them alone, but I also pray for those who believe in me through their message. The New Living Translation says this, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but for all 
meaning all disciples who will ever believe in me through their message. All disciples. He prayed for you, Mary. He prayed for you, my friend, Ray. He prayed for you. He prayed for me. This idea should just be like humbling and almost mind-blowing. Please hear my heart. The, the word that Jesus uses repeatedly in his prayer and what good, trustable scholars say, they call this the high priestly prayer, Jesus' farewell prayer. Lean into what he's saying. He repeats the word one again and again and again. And in, it, in your bulletin, I've bolded that for a purpose. The one means the personhood of God, the substance of God, and the majesty of God. And he prays this Trinity prayer that we would be one. Now, now, Jesus prays this prayer in John 17, and it's incredibly interesting what happened in John 13. In John 13, John records for us the washing of Jesus' disciples' feet. All 12 of them, him too, Judas the betrayer, Peter, the denier, and all ten who would flee from him. It probably, and think about that, 12 people, maybe five minutes apiece, maybe less, but you got to wash both feet for an hour. And what made that so awkward was that Jesus was taking the form not just of a servant when he picked up the towel and washed their feet, but of the lowest of the lowest of the bottom of the totem pole, he did foot care. Nobody did that. And now the teacher who says, what you've seen me do, now you do. That's why there was an awkwardness. Jesus goes on to say, may they be in us this oneness so that the world may believe that you sent me. That's what's at stake. A watching world. That the world will know that you've sent me, and I have given them glory that you gave me, the one, there it is again, as, that they may be one as we are one, and I in them. There's the word one. He's trying to make a point. Now remember the context the context of the Lord's Prayer comes in Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7. And Matthew 6 is smack dab in the middle. And what Jesus has said in Matthew chapter 5 is he starts, and if you want to go to your Bibles, you can find that. Jesus starts his very famous service with the Beatitudes. This is what a follower of Christ will look like. This is what a follower of Christ will look like. And as you read through the Beatitudes, you think, nobody can do that. In fact, he ends Matthew chapter 5 by dropping this, be perfect as my Father is perfect. And you read it and you go, I'm out. The law is not a checklist we keep, it's a benchmark we fail. And Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. And so Jesus walks through Matthew chapter 7, uh, Matthew chapter 5, excuse me, and he talks about anger and he talks about lust and he talks about 
marriage and divorce and marriage, and he talks about oaths and breaking your word and revenge and retaliation. And Jesus says there's another way. He uses some code words. You have heard it said, but I say to you. You see it in Matthew 5, 21 and 22, 27, 28, 31 and 32, 33 and 34, 38 and 39, and 43. You have heard it said. You have heard it said. This is the cultural narrative. You have heard it said amongst people. You've heard it said in your culture. You've heard it said in your newsfeed. You've heard it said at people at the marketplace. You've heard it said amongst friends. You've heard it said, but Jesus said, I say to you. In other words, there's a new way. Look at what Jesus said. Look at what Jesus said. His last one, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor. Have you heard that said? Have you heard that said in our culture? I'm not being political. I'm just reading what Jesus said. This is what he said. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But, look at what Jesus said. I'm just reading scripture. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Wow! He said that. Not only love your neighbor, that's nothing new. But then Jesus said, I'm assuming you're going to love your neighbor, but now love your enemy too and pray for them. Now maybe this hits you and you say, Jesus, I can't do that. And let him whisper and hear this in your heart. I know you can't, but I can. I will and I want to through So Jesus goes on to say in this verse, as Jesus prays for you, I, the great I am, in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. That is the same word as one. It's just nuanced a little different. It's the same word. The unity is not conformity, but the unity has a point, and the point is what Jesus has said, that the world will know that you sent me, and you have loved them even as you have loved me. One of the prayers that our elder board prays every month, our first hour we have devotions, and we spend time in praying for the staff prayers that come. And one of my staff prayers that I pray for this beautiful body, and it's been going on for probably two, three years. This is the first one that I post each time. Pray that God will protect our church family from division. Pray for health in our church family. Pray that reconciliation will take place where it needs to amongst those in our church family. Pray that a spirit of repentance and pettiness be confessed and tribalism and preferences would be identified and laid at the cross. Pray against spiritual pride. Pray that legalism would be torn down as a stronghold. Pray that the enemy of our souls would be bound and pray earnestly against a toxic, critical, and gossipy spirit that would leak out against the Holy Bride of Christ. I pray that for our body, friends. 
I pray that for our church family. We are not a perfect church. You don't have a perfect pastor. We are broken people that Christ is changing. But we need to make sure that in a culture that is divisive and divisive, we make sure who the enemy is. And it is our ancient foe. There are people that are lost and damned without Christ. And they will spend eternity apart from Jesus. That is our enemy. That is our enemy. I invite you to humbly, I say this, I appeal to you, I beg of you, to meet with a friend, a godly friend, who will have the guts to look you in the eye when you ask them the question, do I have a divisive spirit? Do I have a toxic spirit? This is an opportunity as a church. There is a lost and dying world to see if we love one another. And as we love one another, that is a powerful witness. That is the witness. Not how cool we are, not how relevant we are. That is the gospel witness. That's what Jesus was talking about. So I've shared this before, and I'll, I'll, I just want to share it again. I had a friend of mine who challenged me a couple months ago. He said, Kirk, what difference would it make if we looked at people and instead of looking at them and saying what's wrong with them, we just click the dial, just turn the dial one click over and we ask this question, I wonder what their story is. I wonder what's going on in their life. I was on a trip. I was out in Seattle. I was in the SeaTac airport. And I saw this young man and he walked by and he looked really rough. He had tattoos all over the place and he just looked angry. And I immediately wanted to go, what is wrong with him? And then my friend's voice kind of triggered. We were traveling together and I thought, I wonder what his story is. I wonder if maybe he went, his folks went through a messy divorce or he did. I wonder if maybe he got hurt by a pastor or a priest or a Christian worker. Maybe he lost his dream job. Maybe someone he loved died or someone he wanted to love. I wonder what his story is. Lord, you know his story. You know his story. What a difference that is. Nobody, nobody earns this meal. This meal was paid for already. You ever had someone pay for your meal before you get the check? Isn't that kind of fun? This meal was paid for you. It was paid by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross. He was crucified between two thieves. And one thief was, they were both cursing at him and then one of the thieves saw that Jesus was saying nothing and he said, remember me when you come into paradise. This is a meal that we come to with humility we come to in repentance and we come to and say, Lord, you know my heart. You know my heart. Will you forgive even me?
So hear the words of institution. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land, and about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, and they put the sponge on the stalk of a hyssop plant and lifted it to the lips of Jesus. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished, and with that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. His good friend John says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, we really can be forgiven. We really can be set free. So I ask you these four questions with your head bowed and your eyes closed. Just ponder these questions. Do you believe in the promises found in the scriptures that they're true? And in this meal, do you recognize the presence of the Lord Jesus? Do you repent of your sins? Do you turn from them and say, God, help me? Finally, are you reconciled with believers in this Christian fellowship? Are you reconciled? Have you sought that? Lord, you hear the prayers of your people and we ask that this body, this church family would be overabundant with the sweetness of the love of Christ because of your grace and your mercy, because of your grace and your truth, because of your grace and the cross. So hear us as we confess our faith. I invite you to stand. Let's say the words of our faith and the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into heaven. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from where he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, the life of the cross. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then Jesus took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body for we all share in that one loaf. I invite you to have a seat. Just a few words of instructions. If you haven't had communion with us before, we have four stations 
that are in the back, and each of them have a gluten-free wafer. We ask that you would take the elements. It's just a one piece here. There's a juice and a wafer. We ask that you bring those back to your uh, seat and that we'll all partake in them together. Please know, if you're not an official member, if you're a guest this morning, this is for broken people who need the forgiveness of Jesus. You are welcomed at this table. No one, no one earns this. This is all a gift. And it is a privilege that we have as followers of Christ. If you'd like to sing, you're welcome to do that. If you just want to listen to the words as we sing the songs, you're welcome to do that as well. Now, friends, come to the table. We ask that you'd uh, kind of split yourself. There's, you can go in the back or the front, whichever is closest to you. Welcome to the table.